Today, I'm talking with axiology influencer and accomplished scholar, Rem Edwards, PhD. I asked assistant professor at the University of Central Arkansas, Malcolm North, PhD. He's also a board member at the Hartman Institute about Rem's influence on him. He shared, I have three books by Dr. Edwards. Each has impressed me with the depth of integration and application of Hartman's axiology in areas such as ontology, ethics, spirituality. Rem is an irreplaceable, unique contributor of axiological thought and discussion, going beyond Hartman and extending knowledge, wisdom, and insight into areas that are essential to life. Rem's life and work are unique, having all the properties of intrinsic value and having properties that no one else has. His impact and legacy have meaning for anyone wanting this insight to live, live well, and live better. So this is an episode with a humble, smart, easy to talk to, interesting person, Dr. Rem Edwards. And it's about life. It's about Hartman. It's about axiology. And it's super interesting. And I can't wait to share it with you. Michael, hit it. Welcome to the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast, a show designed for leaders, trainers, and consultants who are responsible for employee selection and professional development. Each episode is packed full with insider tips, best practices, expert interviews, and inspiration. Please welcome the host who is helping leaders, trainers, and consultants everywhere, Susie Price. Hi there, I am Susie Price, and you are listening to the Wake Up Eager Workforce podcast. We talk about employees. We talk about building high commitment, low drama workforce. We talk about waking up eager, and uh, we're excited to be back with you today. I am also the managing principal of Priceless Professional Development, where we work with leaders across many industries, providing resources from making sure you get the right people in the right seats to once they're in the seat to onboarding them in a way that helps them feel engaged and you don't have that new hire turnover that often happens to team building to keep the team, especially right now. We're in the midst of month, I don't know what, nine of the coronavirus team building. Great tools there to help teams continue to talk and connect and work together. Leadership development, succession planning, conflict resolution. And so much of the work we do is related to the science of axiology, which is what we've been focusing on in some of these episodes that we've been doing together in regard to axiology influencers. And we train and certify people in the different assessment tools that we use. We have six-week certification program that's self-paced, certified professional disc analyst, certified professional motivators analyst, trimetrics expert analyst. The trimetrics expert analyst gets to the acumen and axiology, and we love, I love doing the certification programs. They're self-paced. They're full of lots of detail and uh, materials for internal and external consultants to be able to use this work, use these sciences to help people wake up eager. It's not just about an assessment. It's about creating self-awareness. It's about creating other awareness. It's helping people reach their full potential. And in my view, these tools help us do that. It helps us do that in a wonderful, caring, supportive growth way for anyone who's interested. So I love the certification process and I've had many people who've gone through it. If you're interested in that, it's at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash certification. You can find out more. 
Also on this podcast, we'd love to get reviews and would love for you to know that you can subscribe to the podcast. We have an app for Android and iPhone. I've got a little video that I did. If you go to pricelessprofessional.com forward slash review, you can see very quickly in a minute or two how to leave us a review that helps people find us. So if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review. It also shows you how to subscribe to the podcast if you're not sure about that. So I'd love you to do that. Also, you can always reach out to me if you have any questions or suggestions about an episode or um, a topic that we should do or just want to find out about certification or any of our team building and other programs. You can reach out to me at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Susie, S-U-Z-I-E, and that's lowercase. So let's get into our topic today. Uh, It's episode number 76, Axiology Influencers, Why Robert S. Hartman's Work Matters Today. This is a discussion with Rem Edwards, as you heard in the opening, Dr. Rem Edwards. You're going to learn about life and axiology, and he is a caring, humble, and highly regarded intellectual. He was a peer of Robert S. Hartman at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And so if you don't know who Robert S. Hartman is, there'll be some links to some Hartman episodes in the show notes, which you can find the show notes at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N, Rem, R-E-M, his first name. So pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Hartman, R-E-M. So Hartman Rem is the show notes where you find the show notes. So you can learn about uh, Hartman there, and we'll talk about the science of axiology during our discussion today. You're going to learn from Rem about the power of staying curious the power of making connections and having a lot of interests. This is someone who is living a well-fueled, happy, rich life and rich in every aspect of the meaning. And so you're going to really learn from him around what he does and how he handles himself and uh, a lot, all of his interests. You're going to learn more about axiology and how to apply it to your work and home life. Again, the show notes are at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Hartman, R-E-M. A little bit about Rem's background. He spent 32 plus years as a philosophy professor. He has his PhD from Emory. Uh, He's still professionally active. He's very active. Um, He's written 22 books. He was the associate director, editor at Rodolfi and founder and senior editor of the Hartman Institute's Journal of Formal Axiology. His areas of specialization are philosophy of religion, American philosophy, medical ethics, ethical theory, medical healthcare ethics, ethics and animals, formal axiology. And he is a charter member and fellow wisdom council of the Hartman Institute. He was on the board from 1987 to 2013. So lots of wisdom there. The Hartman Institute, if you want to know more about it, it's at hartmaninstitute.org. Now let's go to the interview. Ram, welcome. I'm so glad to see you this morning. Glad you're here. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Yep. It's good to see you. Hey, let's start with our first question. And it's a, a broad one to kind of get an overview. Tell us how you became aware of Hartman's work and why you've been committed to it throughout your career. Okay. I became acquainted with Hartman and his work as something of an accident of history or a gift of the grace of God, whichever way you want to see it. But I joined the faculty in philosophy at the University of Tennessee in 1966. And uh, two important things happened in the philosophy department that year. One is that John Davis, 
who was one of Hartman's former students, became the uh, head of the, the, of the philosophy department that year. And the other is uh, a new uh, PhD program in philosophy was beginning to be offered by the University of Tennessee in that year. And I and one other uh, colleague, Dwight Vandevey, were brought to the University of Tennessee in order to help initiate and staff this uh, new PhD program in uh, philosophy. Two years later, not one year later, as I said in an earlier discussion, but two years later in 1968, uh, Hartman joined the faculty also in philosophy at the University of Tennessee as its first, as the university's first distinguished research professor. So I got acquainted with Hartman and his work uh, simply because I happened to be here at the time that he came. So did you have any idea that this would become a big piece of your life's work? I had no idea that it would, <laughs> but it did. <laughs> yes, it did. And, and I'm very happy that it did. Yes, yes. Uh, you, you also asked about, uh, what was the other part of your question? Uh, it was, you know, how you became aware of it and why you became committed to it. Now oh, you have yeah. other I interests. committed to it. Okay. Yeah. 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 There are two basic approaches to Hartman. One is you, you, you get into Hartman because you are a consultant using the very powerful uh, personality value-based Hartman value profile. And the other way to get into it is through understanding the theory behind the profile. And my focus through the years has been almost entirely on the theory behind the profile. So I think I'm committed to Hartman because I think that his general theory of value is probably the most uh, plausible, most defensible, uh, most insightful, most helpful, most applicable theory of value that I know of anywhere. Now, this doesn't mean that I agree with Hartman about any about everything. Uh, I've had some very fundamental disagreements with Hartman. I'm not a true believer uh, who agrees with Hartman about everything, but I think that if you make a few modifications in uh, Hartman's value theory, which I have expressed in, in print a number of times, uh, you will end up with a truly wonderful uh, general theory of value. That's awesome. So how would you explain the theory of value to someone who is coming to this podcast? Uh, they're either maybe they're a client of mine or they've listened to other podcasts. How would you explain what this is to or you're having dinner with a friend and they, they yeah. talk to you about what you're doing? How do you generally explain this? And, and then how do you explain why it matters? OK, well, Philosophers since the time of Plato has searched for the form of the good, which played an important part in Plato's philosophy. But no one before Hartman had ever figured out what it was or, or how to define it. And Hartman uh, did uh, figure out what it was and how to define it. Some philosophers have said it couldn't be defined at all, uh, but he showed that it could be defined in a very formal way as a uh, standard or concept fulfillment. That means that uh, before you can judge anything to be good, uh, you gotta have some notion of what it is and also what its good making features or properties are. And then you have to compare the, the uh, reality that you're wondering about with the standard 
And if it meets the standard, uh, it's a good thing. And it's just purely a matter of following the logic of Harman's understanding of goodness. And of course, that can be used uh, uh, by almost anyone in, in any area of human interest. It isn't just moral goodness that is concerned here, but but every kind of goodness imaginable is, is covered by that uh, form of the good. And Harmon distinguished three different basic kinds of value as well, systemic, extrinsic, and intrinsic. Other philosophers had, uh, had distinguished two out of three of those, but, and, and the systemic had always been there, but Harman uh, was the first to identify this as a separate and distinct realm of value. Systemic values are just conceptual, mental, philosophical, uh, theoretical values. Extrinsic values are useful, practical activities and things and processes in the world. And intrinsic values, well, there's a lot of debate philosophically about what that is, but but Harman's solution is one that he finally convinced me <laughs> that he was right about. And that is it's uh, unique individual centers of consciousness like human persons. Uh, you can do an awful lot with that once you've got that basic framework. And then there's one other basic element in the framework, and that's what, and that's the hierarchy of values. What the hierarchy of value tells us basically in application is that people are more valuable than mere things mere inanimate objects and processes, like cars, for example, or land. And uh, both of those are more valuable than mere ideas about them. So, you know, the conceptual dimension of human interest and value is, the, is overall the least valuable, uh, the practical, applicable, do it, uh, work, make it work, uh, aspect of it is is even more valuable than ideas about making it work. And uh, the most important thing of all, the most the, the supreme value is intrinsic values, that is individual persons or animals or God, you can extend this in many different directions. Wonderful description. How has knowing these dimensions and, you know, knowing all three as a philosopher who's into, quote unquote, into ideas, how has that impacted you personally, knowing those dimensions? And, and can you tie anything to yeah. today from knowing that, you know, how it might have changed you? Well, it has changed me. Uh, one of the most remarkable things about this theory, once you really get into it and internalize it and begin to use it, is that it transforms uh, your whole personality. Uh, it gives you a new, refreshing, enlightening way to think about things. Uh, it also uh, has an influence on, uh, on how you work and uh, what you do, how, how you behave, and uh, uh, every practical uh, aspect of human living, including your own personal living. And it also gives you a, a supreme ideal to work with and to work toward, and that is the ideal of uh, intrinsically valuing everybody and everything. That means loving uh, everyone and everything and having compassion toward everyone and everything and identifying yourself intensely and personally with anything 
and everything. Now that's hard to do, mm-hmm. and uh, learning how to do it is not an overnight achievement. It's something <laughs> you work toward for all the rest of your life, and I'm still working toward it. I'm not there yet. Well, you have been described as very intrinsic. And I have some quotes here that we'll go through in a little while, but um, one of the descriptions, which is so interesting, you here you are a professor of philosophy for 32 years, you've written 22 books, you know, on thought, and then people talk about how all the intrinsic things that you have done for them, they, they adore the knowledge, they've learned from you, um, but the theme is he cared, he listened, he valued me. I mean, they didn't all use those words necessarily, but their comments about you represented that. Well, I appreciate all those good thoughts about me. I just hope that they're true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no arms were twisted to get those quotes. <laughs> Freely given, there was no making anybody do anything. Tell me a little bit about how you came from a small town in Georgia, which I thought that was new. I didn't know that you came from a small yeah. town in Georgia to being a professor for all these years, writing all these books, being an editor, and being, you know, really admired by so many people in the philosophical world. How did that happen? Did you come from a philosophical learning type family? I did not come from a philosophical background or a philosophical family. I'm going to have to start with my indebtedness to my mother and grandmother. My father died when I was six months old. Oh, wow. I uh, never knew him. My mother, fortunately, uh, had a job as a postal clerk, and she uh, and, and she brought my grandmother over to live with us and take care of me while I was growing up. And she supported us, and, and the two of them uh, really encouraged me and supported me and helped me and, and uh, in every way imaginable. And, and I, I'm sure that a large, large part of the personality that I have today uh, is indebted to uh, my mother and my grandmother. But I'm going to skip way on ahead now (laughs) beyond high school, and there's a lot of good things I can say about that. But uh, I started college uh, at uh, Emory Junior College at Oxford, Georgia. We called it Emory at Oxford. Uh, This is where Emory University was first started. And uh, Our college was a tremendously uh, exciting and enlightening uh, period of time for me, especially those first two years there. I had some wonderful teachers and wonderful uh, fellow students. And and I tell people that that during my first two years at Emory at Oxford, I got two years of high school and two years of college, uh, all in two years' time. Wow. So from there, I went on to uh, Emory University. Now, uh, this is where philosophy comes in. Uh, I never even knew what philosophy was until I became a junior in college. Most people uh, who graduate from the junior college, Emory at Oxford, went on to what we call Big Emory in Atlanta. Yeah. When I got to be a junior in college, I, I went on to Big Emory in Atlanta. And I didn't know what I wanted to major in, so I, I signed up for a variety of courses. One of those courses just happened to be uh, a course in the history of philosophy, specifically of Greek philosophy, ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, uh, being taught by uh, Richard Hawking. A- and it was also a, a, an amazing uh, revelatory experience for me. Uh, John Davis said that when he was first exposed to philosophy, that was a truly revelatory experience for him. 
Now, I didn't think of it in exactly those terms at, at the time. I'd been in that course for a couple of, of weeks, and uh, I, I was telling myself, gee, this is really good stuff. This is really interesting. By the time I'd been in there a month, I was telling myself, wow, this is what I've been looking for all along, and I didn't even know it. Uh, so I continued with uh, with with that course and uh, and ended up as a philosophy major. And by the time I graduated from college, I decided I wanted to be a college teacher. And the, and the one thing that made that possible was that uh, late in my senior year, I was one of two students at Emory who were nominated to receive a Dance for the Graduate Fellowship. Now, at that time, the uh, Danforth family, who uh, owned a significant portion of uh, Ralston Purina, uh, saw a, a need that they, uh, as a very generous family, decided to try to fill. And that was a need for a whole batch of college professors in all different fields uh, who would be on hand to teach the baby boomers who had been born right after World War II. And the Danforth family poured millions of dollars into educating hundreds of new PhDs in all different academic disciplines so that they would be available to teach the baby boomers. And I just happened to fall into that category. And uh, I did receive the Danforth uh, Foundation. And it paid for my entire, my entire graduate uh, career. Uh, I went on from Emory to uh, Yale University, Yale Divinity School. Uh, I really didn't know when I graduated from Emory what I wanted to teach. I knew I wanted to teach. I committed myself to the Danford Foundation to be or become a teacher once I got my PhD degree. But I, I didn't know whether I wanted to teach religion or philosophy. So went to Yale Divinity School. I uh, took as many courses in the Department of Philosophy at Yale during that period of time. For three years, I struggled with trying to decide whether I wanted to teach philosophy or religion. And uh, after three years, philosophy won. So I got a PhD in philosophy, and uh, I've been teaching philosophy ever since. I've lost track of what your original question was. <laughs> you want to No, go it's perfect. It's perfect. Where you want to go from there? <laughs> no, it's perfect because it tells the story of how you went from being in a small town in Georgia to how you got to where you were and where you well, are. The small you... town in Georgia where I grew up was not at all philosophical. No, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> you know, my my first peek into philosophy was I had taken a sociology course, probably my freshman or sophomore year, and I disliked it tremendously. I thought, OK, they're not doing anything with this. It's just I don't know. I, I felt impatient with it. So then the next time I took another elective, I guess it was an elective because I was a journalism major, but I took a philosophy course and then the professor was uh, Dr. Von Frank. And I remember sitting there saying, OK, I don't understand everything that he's saying, but I sure do like this. You know, I sure yeah. do want to understand this. Mm -hmm. I want to be around this. I want to be around ideas. Now, I'm surely did not verbalize all that, but I remember. Um, and then I met some other philosophy students and I still rem remember, you know, you remember the moment, you know, I remember what Dr. Von Frank looked like. I don't remember any of my other professors. I remember that student that I met met who was who went on to become a Ph.D. in philosophy and while I'm not scholarly, 
I am supremely interested in ideas and being around people who are scholarly. And so, and, you know, I am in the field of that. I'm on the consultant side of the equation that you mentioned at the start. But so talking about that, I'm curious about as a professor uh, for 32 years and plus, because you kept an office way after you retired there at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, I would think sometimes being a philosophy professor could be very gratifying because it's your field, but also challenging to get points across to to these young minds who are thinking about a lot of other things. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious about what you would say was were the best and hardest parts of being a philosophy professor. Uh, the best parts were interacting with uh, philosophy faculty and students and trying to teach philosophy to students, that, that certainly takes you beyond the purely systemic aspects of anything. Yeah. You're interacting with very real people and trying, uh, whether you know it or not, to influence their lives and their values and their way of thinking about everything. Not everyone in, in uh, who is a teacher uh, in a college admits that that's what they're doing, but that is exactly uh, what they're doing anyway. So just just interacting with students, but also I've, I've, I think that curiosity has been the driving force behind my intellectual career or the intellectual aspect of my career. And uh, over the years, I've had an opportunity to uh, do research and writing and publication and editing uh, on things that I had an immense personal curiosity about. So, you know, the people and the uh, intellectual fulfillment, I think, have been the two most important aspects and fulfilling aspects of my career as a philosopher. I want to say that I had some wonderful teachers all along the way at both uh, Emory University and uh, Yale Divinity School and the Yale Department of Philosophy. And I have to give them an awful lot of credit for giving me the background that I have needed for uh, the professional career that I have had. Where do you think your work is? You have many specialties um, in your work and, um, you know, everything from, I made little notes here, philosophy of religion, medical ethics, ethical theory, mental health care ethics, ethics and animals, formal axiology, American philosophy, Where do you think, um, and this may be a broad question, but I'll go to the formal axiology part. Where do you think all of that is headed based on the past and the books you've written and what's happening with the Hartman Institute now and the broader picture? Because you have a bigger picture than I do on that. Where do you think axiology is going, if anywhere? Well, I've been a terrible predictor of the future (laughs) all my life. (laughs) And I'm not. I'm not sure where it's going, to be perfectly honest. I have some hopes about where it will go. Okay. Tell tell us those, what your hopes are. Well, I'm hoping that uh, more and more uh, people will will get involved in axiology, both as consultants and uh, on the uh, college and academic level. I've made several important contributions, I think, to the Hartman Institute. This may be getting into another topic. But I've been an, a board member and, and secretary and treasurer uh, for uh, many decades in the Hartman Institute. Uh, I've done what I could do to sustain and promote the Hartman Institute itself. 
the Harmon Institute has the basic responsibility uh, and objective of promoting Hartman's work and ideas and what you can do with them practically. So I've done a lot of work for the Institute. And one of my objectives during all of those years was to uh, try to see to it that as much of Hartman's own works and as many articles and books about Hartman got published and available to anyone who wants to read them. And, and then uh, in uh, 2008, I founded, uh, created, and became the senior editor of uh, the Institute's Journal of, of Formal Axiology. And I continued as the senior editor in that for 10 years. Cliff Hurst, wonderful successor, doing a terrific job, uh, is now the senior editor of that journal. Uh, but I hope that in all of these ways and with the cooperation of, uh, of all the people who are now working so hard in the Institute, I hope that uh, Hartmannian axiology has a very bright future. It is a hope. I, I cannot predict that anything will ever happen. <laughs> I'm not a good predictor of the future. Yeah, yeah. I'm you. Yeah, I'm usually like a couple of weeks ahead of my, and that's it. <laughs> so I would. A couple of weeks behind. <laughs> <laughs> and so, if it grows, more and more people would understand these dimensions. You know, at at the street level, the philosophers would add to the material. I think I, I have heard and understand that Hartman said, I'm just starting this. This is, this that is true. Thing. He expected his philosophy uh, to develop significantly beyond the point where he left it. And he predicted that. And yeah. Uh, he said that, uh, you know, in, in another 20 or 30 years, uh, uh, what I'm doing with philosophy today will hardly be recognizable. It will be transformed significantly. And I hope that I've helped to uh, transform it just a little bit and to develop it uh, further than Hartman himself did. As I say, I, I disagree with Hartman on a few things, but uh, I believe that you can fix all of that and uh, come out with a great value theory that has the potential and only the potential for changing the world. But, you know, I don't know whether that'll ever happen. <laughs> so changing the world, is it? do you believe that if people understood the dimensions and ordered their life in that way, that's the way that uh, in the way of uh, intrinsic over extrinsic over systemic and then this idea of knowing where how clear you're thinking in those areas and, and that you can grow in each area, particularly the intrinsic, is that the way you think it changes the world? Is that the reason you think it does? Well, that is one factor in changing the world. Unfortunately, there are many uh, other factors and elements in human life and human history that are at work. This is one factor that, that could help. But again, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, how it's going to transpire. And, you know, I wasn't aware because I was so I'm so immersed in using the assessment and teaching, you know, human resource leaders around the country, you know, the axiology science. And, you know, so I wasn't aware of until I got involved in the Institute in the past two years, how much more there is to Hartman's work. Yes. I mean, there's a lot there in the archives. And so it'll be interesting to see if we can get that stuff published and out there and so that people can then take that and build upon that. 
Cliff Hurst is doing a great job in finding new stuff in the Harmon archives and getting it published. And uh, uh, there are some people who are still working very, very hard on the academic, uh, theoretical side of Harmon's work. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who are working very, very hard on improving uh, the Harmon value profile and how to interpret it correctly and, and how to use it in uh, practical ways. Yeah, uh, particularly in professional consulting. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've had a big impact, you know, a couple of the I, I will have the whole quotes in the show notes. But Eddie Corbel, who is uh, he calls himself a, a newbie intellectual. I don't know if he uses those words, but, you know, kind of new. And, and he just said basically that your explanation of axiology in one of the the very first volume of the Journal of Formal Axiology, which I'll put a link to the pages yeah. on our institute to that journal. He says that your explanation of it, of axiology is where it all began for me and has grown since into something I am convicted about and confident will be my life's work. Well, that was a just a two-page article on what is formal axiology. I have posted many of my publications on, on uh, various sites where you can read previously published stuff. Yeah. It's only two pages long. It was, it was <laughs> I, hope, I hope it made a difference to somebody. <laughs> yeah, well, you just heard there. I am I am convicted and confident that this will be my life's work. And then he says, Rem has also paved the way for me to think critically and to constructively challenge some of the taken-for-granted concepts within formal axiology. Well, I, I wrote a, a rather detailed book, book titled The Essentials of Formal Axiology, and uh, that's the best and most detailed explanation of all of this that I have to offer to anyone. So if you really want to get into it, the theory of it underlying the, uh, the profile, uh, I recommend that book, uh, The Essentials of Formal Axiology. And if you go to the bookstore page on our Harmon Institute website, you can find that book along with a lot of other good stuff. Yes. I'm going to put a link specifically to that book in the show notes. So um, philosophers or just people like me, consultants, not just, but us who aren't maybe as deep into it can learn by looking at those uh, articles and particularly the book, Essentials of Formal Axiology. You keep mentioning Cliff Hurst, and I'll put a link to his website just so people are, if people are interested, he is the vice president of research at the Hartman Institute um, and he's the writer of the new book, Revolution Against War. Have you had a chance to look at that and read that yet? I have not had a chance, but I know pretty well. I mean, that's a collection of Hartman's writings. So I, I'm familiar with the writings independently, but not collected altogether in that book. So I know what's in there pretty well. And I think uh, Cliff has done a marvelous job of editing all of that and putting it all together into a book for people to see uh, what Harmon had to say about this terrible problem of human war. Yeah. How, how would you explain it to somebody, even though you haven't read the book, but you know his writings? How would you summarize that book to somebody or what's in there? Oh, dear. I hardly know where to start on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple of sentences, you know, like so if somebody says revolution against war is is that, you know, am I going to be uh, down about it? Is it is a, a protesting type book or is it a hopeful book or? Well, it is a hopeful book, but 
but it analyzes the basic values that are involved in war and that and that are being violated by war. And probably the most significant of all, I mean, war is terribly destructive in every dimension of human value. You know, it destroys, people burn books in order to promote wars. Uh, people destroy property with bombs and God only knows what else during war. People destroy people and the psychology of destroying people in war is something that Harmon gave a great deal of thought to. And he, he realized that in order to kill another person in a war, that you have no bones to pick with. I mean, you know, the people that you, the individuals that you kill in a war, you don't have a thing in the world against individually. Uh, they're just in the service of some, uh, some uh, political system. They're just pawns in a political system that have no real significance in and of themselves. Uh, and that's a terrible thing. That's the worst thing, the worst feature of, of all about war. In order to make a go of it, you have to disregard the significance and the value of individual human beings. Yeah. And human beings are the language of war. Body bags instead of individual people, for example. Yes. Uh, all, all the language of war is, is designed to uh, disguise the uh, presence of valuable individual human beings that are being destroyed in those terrible conflicts that we're still involved with today. And I don't know that we'll ever get out of it. Yeah. But Harmon had a lot of good things to say about this, very illuminating things to say about this. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that um, I haven't read it yet, um, but that it's such a hopeful book. That was something that um, Catherine Blakemore, who was one of the helped with the design of it, said it's actually a hopeful book, uh, which is interesting, you know, because you think it really like, OK, this is going to be heavy, but yeah. not. Well, it's readable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and very illuminating. Yes. Very. Tell you some things about war that you've never thought of before, if you read it. And and to earlier when you were talking about intrinsic over extrinsic over systemic, war would be um, the systemic is the biggest focus uh, over extrinsic over intrinsic. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's basically a systems rather than people. You know, the way it's conceptualized is that, it's, you know, it's just one system against another. Yeah. And, uh, it places systemic values like sovereignty, for example, yeah. uh, over the value of uh, all the property that gets destroyed and all the people who get destroyed in a war. Wow. Interesting. Well, we'll put a link to that in the it's show. Got the world upside down. I'll just put it that way. And yes. Yes. It is upside down. Yes. We'll put a link to that book in the show notes. I asked Cliff Hurst, who has his Ph.D. and is vice president of research at the Hartman Institute, a professor and a consultant, about Rem's influence on him. Here's what Cliff Hurst had to say. I first met Rem in 2002 at a Hartman Institute pre-conference workshop, an introduction to formal axiology at the University of Tennessee. He was the first person to be able to explain the nuances of this theory in terms that I could understand. Once I entered a Ph.D. program in 2006 and began to study formal axiology in earnest, Rem was always available by phone or email with answers to my questions, no matter how stupid or grandiose those questions were. 
He served as the external advisor on my dissertation committee, for which I am forever grateful. As founding editor of the Journal of Formal Axiology, he provided me with constructive as well as encouraging feedback on several articles I submitted between 2004 and 2014. He taught me how to become an editor before handing over editorship of the journal to me in 2018, and he remains available to advise me on many details needed to edit an academic journal. No small task. His books, especially Dialogues on Values and Centers of Value with Dickens and Religious Values and Valuations, were extremely helpful to me in learning more from him. He even gave me a pre-publication manuscript of his 2010 book, The Essentials of Formal Axiology. This one helped me keep my head on straight when it started spinning too much. The amount of work it must have taken Rem and Art Ellis to edit and publish Hartman's Knowledge of Good, a critique of axiological reason, is to me almost unimaginable. But what a gift to the rest of us that book is. Anyone who wants to do a deep dive into the philosophical underpinnings of Hartman's theory should read that book. It is not an overstatement for me to say that without Rem, the Institute would not be what it is today, and the world's knowledge of Hartman's ideas would have been likely have been lost to posterity. So let's talk a little bit more about you and your career. Um, who would you say has most influenced you? You talked about your mom and your grandmother. You talked about professors. Yeah. Is there anybody who stands out over and above that? Well, yeah, I, I want to mention two people. One of those is a philosopher who was teaching at Emory while I was there, both as an undergraduate and later as a graduate student, uh, named Charles Hartshorn. Uh, Charles Hartshorn was uh, one of the two founding fathers of uh, a philosophical movement or development called process philosophy and spilled over into theology, process theology as well. Uh, Hartshorn uh, came to teach at Emory when I was a, a graduating senior uh, at Emory, uh, and that was how I really got into process thinking. Explaining what that is can get complicated. I'm just going to say a few brief, brief words about okay. what that is. But Whitehead said that uh, his philosophy was a philosophy that takes time seriously. And that's basically what process thinkers do. Uh, they take time seriously. Many philosophers, most philosophers maybe, uh, have emphasized the spatial features of reality uh, and neglected uh, the temporality of it. Process thinkers believe that the most fundamental feature of reality, most fun fundamental general feature of reality as we know it is time. And they ask about the temporal aspects of everything you want to consider, including God. God has been tr traditionally uh, relegated to, uh, to changeless, uh, static, timelessness. Process philosophers have a new way of thinking about God. Uh, God is very real and involved with us in time right here and now. Uh, in real time and not just from the perspective of a changeless eternity. And that's a revolution in the way of thinking about, about God and, and theology. But, but you get the same sort of revolution when you start thinking about anything in process terms. Oh, and let me say one more thing that I, I got acquainted with John Davis when we were both students at Emory. John Davis got his PhD in philosophy from Emory University. 
And during the year that Hartman came to teach at Emory, which was 1955-56, John and I were both students at Emory University uh, in the philosophy department at that time. And I did not get to know John uh, very well for the first, we were on the quarter system. I did not get to know John very well for the first two quarters. He was just another you know, graduate student hanging around. But in the third quarter of, of my junior year, uh, I got special permission to take a graduate course that was being taught by Charles Hartshorn. And John Davis was in that course. Oh, how about that? There's that and, connection. Uh, John Davis. That's, that's how John Davis and I, I got acquainted with one another and came to respect one another. And I didn't hear anything about or from John Davis for another 10 years. And he didn't hear anything from me. I, I don't know whether he did or not. But anyway, 10 years later, course, when we all went our separate ways, and he went to teach at the University of Tennessee, uh, he called me up. Uh, I was teaching at Jacksonville University in Florida at the time. He called me up, and and uh, I wanted to know if I wanted to apply for a position in philosophy that was open at the University of Tennessee. And he talked me into taking it, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> How about that? In but, 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 but to continue with one other thing, you know, uh, process philosophy is one thing that has greatly influenced my thinking about everything. Robert S. Hartman is the other one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I've already said a lot about that. But during during Hartman's first year here, let's see, 1968-69, uh, he taught a graduate course in the English translation of the structure of value, which is his fundamental uh, seminal work in axiology. That book had been published in Spanish earlier, uh, but the English translation of it came out in uh, 67 and 68, 69. He taught a course in that. I had a good enough good sense uh, as a young philosopher at that time to realize that I could learn something from this guy. And I uh, got his permission to sit in on that course and several others later on uh, as he was teaching with us. But that's what introduced me uh, to uh, axiology. It also introduced many of the graduate students uh, who became the uh, founding fundamental uh, members of uh, the Hartman Institute, some of which are still t with us today and have persisted over the decades as members of the Hartman Institute. And we're all now members of what's called the Wisdom Council. A lot of old fuddy-duddy axiologists. <laughs> I don't see any fuddy-duddy. I see <laughs> lots of liveliness and people in love with life. Uh, I love that description of process philosophy. I've never never heard of that before. And I love well, it. Well, I, I tried to get those two aspects of my own philosophical thinking together, trying to figure out how, how to relate them to one another. And I finally published a book on that titled An Axiological Process Ethics. And uh, that came out in uh, 2014. And what I try to show in there is that, that if you take the two together, they will compensate for the deficiencies that are in one another. And I think you get a, a much more complete uh, and workable uh, worldview if you combine those two dominant philosophical interest and influences of mine into one package, which I try to do in, in that particular book. 
That's wonderful. That that makes sense. That that really clarifies a lot for me in regard to your thinking and your influences, and then what you're what you're meaning when you say that Harmon's work is missing something. Yeah. So that's good. So we'll put a link to that book in the show notes as well. Okay. Thank you, Doug Lawrence, President and Founder of Holistic Business Strategies. Rem Edwards has been a big influence on me and my philosophical studies. I have worked and corresponded with him for some eight years. The topics of philosophy in which we have engaged goes well beyond Hartman and his value profile, including general axiology, process philosophy, process theology, and religion in general. Rem has written some 22 books, and I have perhaps a dozen of them, including his books on John Wesley. For those new to formal axiology, Rem wrote a highly understandable Essentials of Formal Axiology. Rem has great depth and breadth as a philosopher, and I'm happy to count him as a friend who has been a big help to me. All right, so here's the next question. When you think of the word successful, who's the first person that comes to mind? Ah. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is trying to figure out what, what it means to be successful. <laughs> right, right. That's the tricky uh, question. I, I, guess, I guess that means uh, achieving some objective. And, of course, there can be private successes yes. uh, in some sense of the term. But what we usually mean by successful is someone who's achieved some objective that receives some sort of social recognition or social commendation or respect. You can make your own what you see as successful, and it could be that, or maybe it's something else. Well, as an axiologist, I would have to analyze success in three dimensions. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> and uh, the people who are systemically successful are scientists and and uh, college teachers and philosophers and thinkers, people who uh, whose lives are dominated by uh, the sy systemic values. Now, of course, no such people are purely systemic because no. they everybody has uh, the whole range of values to one degree or another. But uh, systemic values dominate uh, academics and and other you know professional thinkers. And you can be successful in you know as an academic or as a thinker or writer or publisher or or systemic valuer. You can also be, be uh, extrinsically successful. Businessmen, I guess, are paradigm examples of, of people who are extrinsically successful. These are, these are people who, who know how to actually get things done in the world. And uh, you can be successful in, in that way too. Again, uh, not no one is, is purely uh, extrinsic. Uh, and, and then you can be successful Systemically, and what do you call those people? I mean, uh, intrinsically, what do you call those people who are who are professionally successful intrinsically? Well, Hartman said that saints, saintliness is a profession, uh, just like any other profession, and it involves being uh, it, it involves identifying yourself intensely with other people. Now, uh, you, so you, you know, and, and we could identify many saintly people uh, if we gave it a lot of thought. Uh, and these are people who are recognized as being uh, loving and compassionate people who have other values and talents, too. I mean, they, you know, they, they express their love and compassion in the real world. 
And it's all guided by uh, some sort of a belief system or conceptual framework. So now you can be successful in one such dimension primarily and two or in all three all at once. And when I, so to, to get back to your original question, who comes to mind? I try to think of somebody who's successful in all three dimensions. And the person who comes to mind uh, to me is John Wesley, who founded the uh, the Methodist Church. I uh, came very late in my life to the study of John Wesley, but uh, when I discovered John Wesley, which was which was in uh, which was in two thousand nine, I, I never read any of John Wesley before that. Uh, since then, I published two books on John Wesley. Yeah, I was going to say I was going to look up the titles of the books. We'll put yeah. links to them in the show notes. But um, uh, that's interesting that you discovered him just. You know, eleven well, years ago. very late in life. Right? And yeah. I think I, <clears throat> I think I was attracted to John Wesley uh, in for two reasons. One is I've been a Methodist all my life, but but uh, nobody, you know, nobody in the that I've been exposed to in Methodism ever told me much about John Wesley, and especially they never told me very much about about John Wesley's ideas, what John Wesley thought, and that's of course is what has interested me as a philosopher. But when I started exploring what John Wesley thought, amazingly enough, I found him to be an almost perfect instantiation of uh, Hartman's value theory wow. <laughs> in religion. It's everywhere. It's every the people who don't know who John Wesley is. Would you? Would you? Uh... Okay, John Wesley lived in the 18th century. Uh, he was. Uh, well, I'll just say a great, successful revivalist and uh, uh, a participant, uh, the dominant participant, I think, in what is called the Great Awakening uh, Revivalism that swept uh, England and this country uh, in the 18th century. And as a result of all of that, uh, he he founded one great church, uh, Protestant church unintentionally, which he never really intended to do, but but he founded uh, the Methodist Church. Uh, it's one of the uh, largest Protestant churches uh, available uh, anywhere today. Now, I can say a great deal more about him, but I'm really more interested in his his thoughts and his ideas than I am in uh, in his life uh, or history. I'll put it in those terms. Let me give you just one. Uh, example of how I think Wesley's thinking exemplifies formal axiology. Awesome. That's perfect. I was just thinking. One, one, uh, one of his favorite verses, and this wasn't even a whole verse. This, this is one of, one of his favorite phrases from the Bible. I uh, came from the book of Galatians, fifth chapter in the New Testament. And it was the phrase, uh, the faith that works through love. Mm. Now, Wesley quoted that and explained that in sermon after sermon, writing after writing. It was, it sort of summarized the gist of real Christianity and what he called true religion. Mm. And anybody who looks at that axiologically is going to see the three dimensions of value right there. Mm -hmm. uh, the faith, if you understand that as, you know, believing a lot of stuff. Yep. Uh, that, that's there, but the believing of stuff of a uh, of a lot of stuff has to be combined uh, with doing it, living it. 
you know, if you don't live it, if you don't practice it, if you don't practice what you preach, you don't really believe it. So these three dimensions of value are, are all there and they're yeah. so intertwined, you cannot really separate them from one another. And when you try to do it, you get into trouble. And of course, you have to you have to believe stuff, live it, and do it out of love and compassion and intrinsic valuation. And you know, I, I've written two books trying to explain all that to people, but that's <laughs> Oh, oh, and the hierarchy of values even there in, in uh, Wesley's works as well. Yeah. Uh, there are several passages in which he writes what he calls the basic elements of Christianity. And at the top of that ranking is love. Mm -hmm. Everything he said in the scriptures and in, uh, uh, and in uh, Christianity and all of its manifestations must be related to love as the sum of all. And uh, religion, true religion was for him primarily a matter of the heart and not of the head, but the head was there and, and the body was there. The faith of the works and the love uh, all have to be there. And you judge everything else and it's, true significance by the dominant thing. The first thing of all is love. Love to God, love to your, your fellow human beings, love, love to your neighbor as yourself. And uh, Wesley, uh, interestingly, uh, said quite explicitly, there's some unloving things in the scriptures. And we can't believe those things uh, simply because they're in, in the scriptures. Everything in the scriptures has to be evaluated, he said, in terms of its nearness to or distance from love. Mm -hmm. So you got the, you've got, uh, you got the hierarchy of value with, uh, with the intrinsic as uh, the dominant value, the dominant ideal in, in what he called true religion. Uh, and you've got the three dimensions of value. They're all there in John Wesley. You just have to dig it out <laughs> and publish it. <laughs> yes, yes. So we're going to put your links to your books. And the thing is, is with axiology, once you know it, it's it's everywhere. It's in everything. It's so interesting. And I love the connection there. I mean, you see examples of it everywhere. It's like gravity. It just is. And it's just so it nice to be able to everything. It will help you understand everything. It will yeah. help you understand people. Uh, yeah. It will help you understand uh, politics. Uh, it'll help you understand religion. It'll help you understand anything and everything you, you're dealing with in life. It's, it's yeah. just a tremendously uh, valuable tool or what Hartman called frame of reference. Yes. And, and it's interesting how divine that insight is when you can go. When was Wesley around? What did you say? 18? Uh, the 1800s. 1800s. Hartman's around in the 1960s. Yeah. Or, you know, he's longer than that. But, you know, but just interesting how the divine ties together. In, yeah. Well, uh, of course, Wesley didn't know anything about Hartman, but it's all there. No, I mean, all no. the dimensions of value are right there in Wesley's thinking. The hierarchy of values right there in Wesley's thinking. Yes. And you can just bring that frame of reference to uh, your reading of John Wesley and you can see Harper. Everywhere. Well, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's just basically that there's universal truths. I always feel like those are inter universal truths. So, you know, Wesley said it and then 
Hartman kind of tapped into it as he did his research. And, you know, based on his background, he was the perfect person to bring that forward. And then based on your background and your experiences, you're the perfect person to have brought forward what you brought forward. It all has the, to me, the spark of divine in it, you know, the universal. Well, truth. we are all working together and we hope we can get somewhere with it. Yep. I think we are. Now, as I'm talking to you, I'm seeing someone, we had exchanged emails, but prior to the conference, I had never met you in person. So I met you in person via Zoom. Thank goodness for Zoom. But we see what I see is someone very vibrant, very active. And you even said you you have, I think the words you use are, you know, you're still active professionally. And of right. course you are. And you have impacted so many people. And you are so lively. So what I would like to ask is um, around the wake up eager, you have said before, you know, I know I'm retired, but I'm busier than ever. <laughs> My days yeah. go by so fast. And I don't know if you want to share your age or not, but. I'm 86 years old. 86 years young. And, and um, my wife and I have been married for 58 years. That's amazing. That's amazing. So talk a little bit about, you know, a lot of what we talk about in the work that I do. This is the Wake Up Eager Workforce podcast. And so a lot of the tools and things are about, you know, how can how can we create work and life that is meaningful, that we wake up eager? And that's like a personal value for me um, that you're you're in the right place, doing the right things. And you have those aha moments like you did with the professor. And then you follow those dreams yeah. and give so much good to the world. And it's kept you very vibrant and alive. So I am curious about things that you would share around waking up eager, systemic, extrinsic, intrinsic. So what are some things that you do, a mind, body, and spirit that you can pass on to us or share? Well, mind, body, and spirit, that covers a lot of territory. Obviously, I read a lot and study a lot and think a lot and write a lot and and uh, edit uh, other people's work a lot and uh, do what I can to publish. So, uh, uh, and, and I'm still doing that. I still, yep. my curiosity has not diminished with age. Yep. And uh, I'm still trying to figure things out and, uh, and find uh, some people who can help me, uh, like Hartshorn and uh, Hartman, along the way. Physically, I have been graced, I suppose, with a, a significant degree of health at my age. I'm physically active. I do a lot of yard work and gardening. And, uh, and right now I'm engaged in uh, leaf raking and grinding <laughs> up leaves and putting them in my compost pile. Uh, in the spring and summer, I'm, I have a fairly large vegetable garden. And I work uh, very hard in that, and, and, I'm, and, and luckily, I'm still uh, able to do that kind of physical work. One of my hobbies is uh, growing cactuses outside. I have, really? Yeah, I, I have one of the largest outdoor cactus gardens in East Tennessee. You're kidding. It's a, big, it's a big job to do it because you have to keep them covered all winter long with clear plastic, and you have to cover them up every time you're having too much rain. Uh, they can take cold weather, but they can't take a lot of rain. So, so you know, it's a, it's a real chore, but it's a lot of fun because uh, cactuses have incredibly beautiful blooms. So that's one of my uh, uh, one of my bad habits. <laughs> yeah, that's unusual. 
cactus. Uh, yeah, the largest in East Tennessee. And of course, my wife and I walk a, a good bit together, so I am physically active. Socially, uh, social life has been cut down significantly during. <laughs> yes, COVID is kind of during this Corona, this uh, this uh, COVID nineteen crisis. But uh, my wife and I are happily married and uh, have been so for 58 years. And she has uh, sustained me uh, uh, in so many ways through the years. And I hope that I have also sustained her. We have two children uh, and four grandchildren. Uh, we're all very close. Uh, these days we Zoom with one another a lot. Oh, that's uh, great. Even though we cannot um, get together face to face, and we're going to miss Thanksgiving and Christmas together this year, uh, but we will still be zooming uh, with one another and enjoying one another that way. Uh, I suppose that while I was working at the University of Tennessee, the people in the philosophy department were my broader social world, uh, and uh, I had a lot of very good close friends there. Uh, and, and had a chance to, to practice uh, and apply my intrinsic values as well as my extrinsic and systemic values there. Since I retired, I suppose my, my most important outside the family social uh, contact has been with the Church Street United Methodist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. We've been a member of that church since 1974. Uh, I've taught, I, in recent years, I've been teaching John Wesley. Oh, wonderful. Two adult classes in, uh, in that church. Of course, now we're, we're only doing church services online, uh, um, mm -hmm. as are most churches these days. But, mm -hmm. but those kinds of social contacts uh, are still uh, very much a, a part of my life. So I try, I try to cover all three dimensions in my Yes, way. you did. And <laughs> it's it's a, a testimony to staying curious, staying interested. What I have noticed in my family is um, with the elderly folks, you know, that are in their 80s, um, their world has gotten smaller, yeah. not bigger. That can happen. I and, hope I'm not intellectually brain dead yet. I'm, no. <laughs> but you have to work at it. You have to work at it, you know, and so, you know. When you get to be my age. Yeah. Well, it's just it's a testament to having interests continually to be curious, um, making connections with people. That's the thing, too, that I, I mentioned in your comments. I already said it. But that intrinsic dimension, you connected with people, not because of just your knowledge, but because your willingness to be with them. When well, I hope I can. I hope I can help them in one way or another. Another thing that I do, I I, I carry on an extensive email correspondence uh, with a lot of people about a lot of things, and uh, and I'm hoping that uh, maybe some things that I say to people in email correspondence will be meaningful and helpful to them. Yeah. You haven't let the world pass you by. Um, you know what I mean? You're up, you're up to speed. You're on Zoom. You're doing email. I mean, all of those things is something everybody can do. But unfortunately, not every not everyone can do. But most of the world can do these things as we pass through time. But you, you've specifically done it. And it's uh, awesome. It's it's a role model for me, for sure. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes. In a lot of ways, it's it's beautiful. 
So speaking of that, passing through time and then doing a little time travel, um, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? I would say uh, keep going. You're on the right track. The best is yet to come. Uh, to my 86-year-old self, I would say keep going. You're on the right track, but the yeah. best is now behind you. Yeah, that's awesome. There you go. There's there's the wake up eager philosophy. Keep staying <laughs> interested. Don't get stuck. You know, so that's beautiful. So last couple of questions. If you could have a billboard anywhere, so you can put a billboard up anywhere in the country, uh, where would you put it and what would it say? Oh, dear. Well, I'd like to have, I would like to, uh, to have uh, a billboard uh, scattered uh, on the interstates <laughs> saying, uh, think hard, live hard, and love hard. Ah, oh, I love that. All the dimensions are in there, of course. Think, live, and love. Yes. And then we're going to close. People that are listening are, are people out in the workforce, um, probably some philosophers as well, people out there leading teams and organizations, and perhaps leading in the colleges as teachers and professors and in the schools. So what's, what's one last bit of wisdom or advice you'd like everybody to take away as we've talked about Hartman's work specifically, because this is a Hartman influencer series, but we've also talked about life and other people who've impacted you. What would you say is a, a takeaway? And you can share more than one if you want. Well, I just want I'm to one brief answer to that. And that is uh, know thyself and uh, use Hartman, <laughs> uh, both the Hartman value profile and a knowledge of, of Hartmannian axiology to become uh, better acquainted with yourself. And once you've done that, it'll transform your whole life mm. and it'll transform it for the better. That's wonderful. Speaking of that, do you remember when you first took, I know I said that was the last question, but it sparked another one. Do you remember when you first took the Hartman Value Profile? Yeah, I, I took it uh, while Hartman was here teaching with us at the University of Tennessee. And he interpreted uh, my profile for me uh, in person. And uh, taking that profile, you know, I, I said I had some disagreements with Hartman here and there along the way, uh, almost from the very beginning. But taking that profile and having it interpreted for me was the very first thing that convinced me that Hartman was really on the right track of something. Oh, and wow. It was something that I needed to study further, uh, learn more about, and, uh, and try to give a fair chance uh, and a fair hearing uh, to what he had to say. I don't remember much that of the details of what he told me. I do remember that on the whole, he really nailed me to the wall. And, <laughs> you know, he knew exactly who I was. <laughs> in no uncertain terms. And I think I've said before in earlier discussions, I think that uh, he was wrong about one thing about me. Uh, he actually told me when he was interpreting my profile that I should never make any practical decisions about anything. Well, I really think that was a bit of an exaggeration. The extrinsic dimension is probably the weakest of my dimensions, and that did show up, as a matter of fact, uh, on, the, on my 
uh, carbon value profile. But I do think that I'm I'm not totally incompetent extrinsically. Oh no! And <laughs> the whole deal is we can grow those areas with knowledge. So That's very true. That's lower true. at that point, it was because you were in college, being a philosophy student, really in the realm of ideas. But you are so much ado i mean your your emails are yeah so i would say that's that's not true today but that's you know probably because maybe you got some insight and you consciously built that i don't know <laughs> you know but anyway i i thank you for the opportunity to talk with you and have this interview with you and uh, greatly appreciate your being the new president of the Harmon institute i think you're going to take us somewhere under oh. your leadership we can go forward definitely oh. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. I've been been on other volunteer situations and boards and things, but this is the only one that has really touched my heart. And like, I want, really, really want to do it. I'm not, you know, it's just, it feels like, I don't know, on purpose. Well, I would say to you, keep going. You're on the right track. Yes. And the best is yet to come. <laughs> and it's wonderful knowing people like you and um, your values. Good to know people people like you too. And so many other wonderful people who are, who are now in the Hartman Institute and have been in the Hartman Institute in the past. Yeah, such interesting, uh, caring, good people. It's it's just a wonderful thing to be associated with. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, indeed. So I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed having the discussion with Dr. Edwards. I want to share the full quote from Eddie Corbel, who is a human potential and Human Resource Organizational Development Manager at Neta Scientific. Here's the full quote. I, I mentioned it in the episode, but I want to read the whole thing from Eddie. I came across Dr. Rem B. Edwards' work just this year during my literature review in preparation for my dissertation. The theoretical foundation and framework of my research is based on formal axiology and Rem's explanation of formal axiology in Volume 1 of the Journal of Formal Axiology is where it all began for me and has since grown into something that I am convicted about and confident will be my life's work. As I continued my deep dive into all of the journal issues, Rem's insights and explanations, as well as his collaborations with other contributors like Leon Pomeroy in the field of formal axiology, is woven throughout. Rem has drawn on deep insights from philosophy and psychology to theology and bioethics. Rem has paved the way for me to think critically and constructively, challenge some of the taken-for-granted concepts within formal axiology. The show notes for today are pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Hartman Rem, R-E-M, Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-R-E-M, Hartman Rem, pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Hartman Rem. So what I enjoyed so much about our episode, I loved, I love that he's a role model. So something I told him off the episode after we finished recording is, you know, so much of my life has been around the desire prompted by some family influences where people weren't really reaching their full potential and really weren't living a wake up eager life. And so I just see Rem as such a role model for how to live a fulfilling life. And I love what he said, you know, as his he told said about himself as a 25 year old and as an 86 year old, keep on going, you're on the right track. Keep on going. You're on the right track. And, you know, you could see and I have the video for this on the show notes as well. So you can see him. I don't always share a video, but I do have that. So I'll share that. I love his billboard. Think, live, love hard. 
And most of all, know thyself. Use Hartman and the Hartman Value Profile and Axiology. It will transform your life. And that is true. So many of us you'll see around the Institute, we just have kind of taken hold of axiology and find it as an interest and something we want to share with the world. If I can help you in any way around taking the Hartman Value Profile, we use it. It's the acumen portion of the Trimetrics Assessment. You can reach out to me. We'll do a one-call coaching session. I'll share a, uh, do that at a minimum fee, and uh, you can take the assessment, and I'll give you some access to some development tools. And if you want to learn more about Trimetrics, and you can look at our certification program, the Trimetrics Expert Analyst Program. I could set up a custom training with you. I do that with organizations around axiology and the acumen portion of Trimetrics. So thank you for tuning in today. I appreciate Rem Edwards. I appreciate uh, you. I appreciate the Hartman Institute. I appreciate Dr. Hartman. So many good things to learn and expand and grow and um, just glad to be a part of it. If you'd like to connect on LinkedIn, that's my main social media platform these days. And we are updating regularly on the Priceless Professional Development page and the Wake Up Eager Workforce pages, um, in addition to my Susie Price page. So keep tracking me there um, or connect there if you'd like. And then the episodes, if you want to subscribe or review, go to pricelessprofessional.com forward slash review, lowercase, and you can get that information. We'll see you on the next episode. I'm working on a axiology simplified episode, and I've got a new analogy I'm going to play with. So I hope to have that to you very soon. Meanwhile, check us out at wakeupeagerworkforce.com. Have a blessed day. Thank you. This episode of the Wake Up Eager Workforce podcast was brought to you by Priceless Professional Development. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to pricelessprofessional.com to gain access to more professional development resources.